Hello and welcome to the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. Today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Claire Fox. Claire is the director of the Academy of Ideas and every year she runs the Battle of Ideas, which is a weekend of debate and discussion with hundreds of visiting speakers right in the heart of London. She also set up Debating Matters, which is a nationwide competition for sixth formers. She's the author of I Find That Offensive. And as of last year, she's also Baroness Fox of Buckley as a member of the House of Lords. We talked about many things in our conversation. We talked about her time in the House of Lords, also the battle of ideas and the need for free speech and much, much more besides. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you, Claire, for joining me. First thing I should say is I adore the battle of ideas. It's my highlight of the year. Uh, you have this incredible event with all these speakers, all these debates. It's a really exciting thing to do. You set this up 16 years ago, is that right? And what were the circumstances behind that? That's right. Uh, the Academy of Ideas had been going, we were known as the Institute of Ideas then, for a few years. And we kept having big events on education or on science or on... And we'd have these kind of, you know, that's my kind of thing, public debate and discussion. And then somebody said, you can't just have a theme of an event. Why don't you bring them all together? And it was, it was somebody else's idea in that sense. So I thought, you know what? We could do a sort of festival, <laughs> original. Anyway, we started to uh, think about, and one of the things that was very important to us was, could we make people see that some of the trends that we were concerned about at the time beginning to be the attacks on free speech? Mm-hmm. Could we, uh, you know, some of the dumbing down of education, some of these things that we were interested in, to see that across the board, whether you were talking about uh, the world of medicine, whether you were talking about the world of arts, that actually they had a lot more in common and so you could kind of map them out. So this, the funny bit that happened was I got this idea, I, I talked to at the time the Royal College of Art. We wanted it to be a working college, a bit grungy, you know, yeah. it wasn't, we weren't trying to kind of like be. So we went to the Royal College of Art and we basically said, can we take over the art college one weekend <laughs> and do this event? And then we just happened to be somebody very on side who said, you know, why don't we do it? And then we also got some support from somebody who in Nesta was very um, forward thinking. And so we started organising a festival. And at that time, there started to be a range of articles in newspapers about how people like the Hay Festival, various other festivals had tried to do something in London and what a disaster it was. And you couldn't have a festival in London. A festival of ideas wouldn't work in London because there was too much to do. And who was interested? I thought, great, we're just about to do one. Anyway, we we proved that it was possible. And now you can't move in London for festivals of ideas, to be honest. And also, we were the first big festival of ideas in the UK. Yes. And what worked about it was that we we emphasised that it was public. Yeah. It was a public conversation. And we wanted to get people to... Uh, come along and debate with panels rather than experts from panels lecturing at everyone. Yeah. And, you know, started off with a few hundred people the first year and it just grew and grew. We eventually moved into the... We ran out of space at the Royal College of Art, that yeah. was the truth. And we got kind of headhunted by the Barbican at the time, who yeah. said, why don't you come and take over the Barbican, which is such an enormous expanse of a building. So that's what we did. And it's become now, um, you know, over usually over 100 panel debates with 3,000 people over the weekend. Now, we had a pandemic. Yes. We have postponed this battle of ideas endlessly. We are here at last, back live. But you're now in a different venue, is that right? In a different venue, we're still in Church House. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it resonates with history because it's a venue that 
you know, during the Second World War, the House of Lords and the House of Commons had to move there to avoid the bombs. Yeah. Um, you know, well, that is quite metaphorically resonant, isn't it? There is something about that, but they have public inquiries there. It's the home of the Church of England, but it's more than that. And I really love the building. I love the history of it. We want to see it as a people's takeover of Westminster. It's yeah. a bit like saying across the road is Parliament, both houses. Um, here are the people who they're supposed to represent and we're talking about what we think is important. And was it always your intention to have various strands? I mean, what's great about it is you have, you know, you've got debates on politics, on education, on the arts, all sorts of things, yeah. architecture, whatever, you know. Is, was, that, was that always there from the beginning or yeah. did that develop? that was it. That, that was where I was saying that we were having one day events or one weekend events. And we did, you know, we did a big event on genetics. Yeah. Do you believe we did a big event on, on on medical science and breakthroughs, a big events on education and then on arts. And then somebody said, God, you've got to be every weekend of the year, bring them together. Yeah. So that's how the strands emerged. I think that's really worked because people can either sit and stay in a strand all day and see an idea through or they can just through serendipity end up bumping, you know, going to something else. And one of the, my nice stories was that we had some sponsorship uh, for a short time, long before they became more famous as they are now, from Pfizer, who was sponsoring uh, some of the debates. And um, one of the kind of leading corporate leaders of Pfizer uh, was discovered in a breakfast banter, 45-minute discussion on poetry, <laughs> uh, because he secretly loved poetry. He then went on to become somebody who was involved in Poet in the City and joined their trustee board. Yeah. We like to think of it as bringing people together in sort of... Oh, that's great. It, it does have that interdisciplinary quality about it. And what I think is really great about it is there's, a, there's a, all sorts of debates going on at any given time. You get to pick and choose. You get to structure your day. I think that's really great. And, of course, the other great thing, I think, is the way in which it involves the audience so much. It has that town hall kind of quality about it. And that's something you've always done as well, isn't it, and encouraged? Absolutely, because one of the things that we realised was that we didn't want to be... Um, an echo chamber and we kind of used that phrase before again it became fashionable yeah. because we were aware of the fact that there was a professional conference circuit people kind of went and they knew what to expect and we wanted it to be a little bit more anarchic than that yes and we wanted to encourage people who had never been to literary festivals or ideas events or you know uh, to come along and that actually worked we attract a very uh, young and diverse crowd without ever trying to attract a young and diverse crowd yeah. they just come yeah. any uh, free thinkers and open-minded people of all ages we always say from you know, 14 through to 80s, uh, 90s. And the reason I'm emphasising that is because partly it was about creating a public space mm. in the spirit of the way the whole public sphere was ever created, yes. which was is that you encourage people who don't normally have a voice to open their mouths and speak. I remember when at the beginning people would say, isn't it very risky having a public event? I mean, you don't know who they are or what they're going to say. And the inference was that we were going to have the public at an event and, you know, they were inevitably going to be some kind of, you know, either in some people's minds they were going to be drunk or inarticulate. Or I remember somebody saying, you might get drunk people in or you might get, yeah. you know, or, or, or people who were like fascists or, you know, this idea of a public which is a scary mob. Yes. Of course, it's not like that at all. Yeah. They're you and I. They're ordinary people. We, we've all got opinions. So it's a bit more, it's like an organised down the pub, really. But it has got substance at its heart. So we yeah. do invite... And that's where you and I first kind of met each other properly. We invite people we think have got something interesting to say to stimulate the discussion, not set up as experts, but as people who will delve deeply into issues, go beyond the headlines, really get people thinking. And then we open up half of the discussion to the audience to participate. 
Yeah, I mean, I was, I, when you invited me for the first one a number of years ago, I wasn't an expert in anything, really. <laughs> you know, I was there to talk about identity politics, but at the time I was writing a biography of a Northern Irish novelist, which I still haven't finished. Um, I did wonder about the way the battle has changed over. I mean, 16 years. Yeah. And if I think back, you know, I, my, my instinct is that things must have been a little easier to get all of the sides re- represented on those panels, because these days... You know, when you've got some, you know, with, with political tribalism at its height, when you invite someone, uh, their opponent might say, well, I'm not going to sit on a platform with, with him or her. Do you get a lot of that problem? So that's one of the things that's changed. Um, I mean, obviously, in society uh, and reflected in the festival, um, that we always prided ourselves on not, with, you know, when we say battle of ideas, people can sometimes think it's like everyone's shouting. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. battle of ideas is, a, is actually itself an intellectual idea that you have to... Uh, convince other people of your side of a, a discussion yeah. but it's also not debates when we say debate panels people go you haven't got for and against it was never that no. but what it was was people with different opinions and, and different views trying to unpick things and, and dig a bit deeper you're absolutely right though it's become very hard because what you get accused of all the time is well you haven't got representatives of this 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 groups and you think god you don't know how many people I invited Yeah, yeah. there is a closing down of tolerance in terms of an engagement with people whose opinions you don't agree with. Yeah. Either people, as we know, and you've explained this so well on your show and on the podcast, either people will say, well, I would find it psychologically damaging to have to encounter that person, or they delegitimise their opponents by saying that they are beyond the pale of political debate, usually by calling them far right or, or bigots of some sort or another. So yes, it, is, it has become... Uh, more and more difficult because people have become, well, we say people, people involved in politics feel more secure talking to their own side. Yeah. And they consider that uh, debate is, you know, far too inconvenient, an indulgence almost, as though somehow, uh, you know, action and talking to your own side and deciding what to do is the most important thing. And that makes me feel uncomfortable because there are probably less people speaking on the panels who represent a broader view than I would like. But all credit to both my colleagues and to the people who are speaking that we do, I do feel it's a, a fairly good cross-representation of political views in the country today. Yeah, I mean, who was the politician who described debate as a fetish? You know, this idea that, that, that there are just some ideas that you just don't broach. But as we've seen, you know, by not broaching those ideas, uh, you don't resolve them. It, you know, nothing gets, nothing gets, things just get worse and worse and worse. One of the things that's been really depressing in the last 18 months, 20 months of the lockdown period, which really proves your point, which is that when people perfectly understandably locked down, facing a a, a pandemic of a virus that nobody understood, people were kind of forced in social media uh, to, you know, onto social media, people who'd never had Twitter or Facebook accounts suddenly went there to ask questions, to raise concerns, to say, what do you think about the removal of our civil liberties is it necessary for safety you know asking those questions does anyone understand this virus is it like you know ebola is it like this is it like that and very quickly the authorities and particularly big tech started saying this is disinformation and banning it yeah now did those ideas go away no the problem is they went down a rabbit hole yeah in fact it was that over panicky defensive way of dealing with contrary or just just questioning views sometimes a bit wacky or fair enough that actually has created a genuine problem now of conspiratorial thinking yeah because people actually were forced into 
the only places where they could find space to raise some sort of awkward questions was amongst some, you know, I would say pretty unsavoury types. But nonetheless, that's where they've ended up. So ideas don't disappear by banning them. They fester in places that don't see the sunlight of reason, of challenge, and they actually, I think, become more toxic in those circumstances. With that in mind, are there any particular topics that you're covering at the battle this year that you think are particularly important? Well, we've tried to look at a range of institutions in crisis or, yeah. or you know, institutional meltdown, I think we've called the, the strand, where we're looking at what we think about the NHS now. Now, you know, this is not kind of like, should it be privatised or not, you know, in that kind of way. It's like, genuinely, at what, after what we've been through, there are different views about whether the NHS is fit for purpose. And we've got people who are very enthusiastic supporters of it, and some people who are saying, well, I think we need to look at this again. So that would be, that strand, it strikes me, as being very important. And also, the march through the institutions of, in fact, social justice uh, uh, concerns, which is actually having a, I would say, a very detrimental impact on whether it's the National Trust or whether it's uh, the Mm. police who seem to spend huge amounts of time, as we know, uh, dancing to Stonewall's tune rather than being uh, police uh, policing yeah. our streets. We are trying to take a dispassionate look at the COVID period, yeah. but not in a kind of, you know, not in a let's go over it endlessly. But we are saying, what is the new normal? Do we have to accept it? Yeah. And um, what do we think about working from home? You know, those kind of, you know, f- fairly familiar things. Um, what will it mean for city life if we accept something like the vaccine passport? So not just kind of rants against vaccine passports, but what will it mean for urban living if that's the case? Yeah. We are, as always, interested in education, yeah. always interested in science, always interested in moral questions. So we've got a, a, a fabulous debate on animal sentience because that's becoming quite a big uh, discussion about whether we should um, treat animals as almost on a par with humans. Yeah. And, and so we've got representative from the vegan party versus people who think that they believe in human exceptionalism. And I suppose the final kind of like taster of the kind of way that we try and mess, the, mess around with ideas is that we've just decided to introduce a panel on religion. Yeah. And, and particularly it's called Onward Christian Soldiers. And it's really about the churches closing down during the pandemic and then what their priorities are since and some of the issues going on in the church of England. People might think that's a bit odd. I'm an atheist. What are you doing that for? But I think it's like fascinating to try and understand society where a place or an organisation, an institution you associate with solace if people are dying or sick, closed down when everyone was dying and getting sick. Yeah. I mean, what does that mean? What legacy does that have for that institution, say? It sounds like a lot of the things you're outlining there are sort of connected in a really interesting way because you talk about, you know, the way that the police are perceived to be spending too much time on social justice issues. You've got the uh, universities uh, in a similar position. You've got the way in which there's been COVID, uh, accusations of COVID disinformation, this kind of thing. And um, it, it relates to something I was talking to Peter Bogosian about, which is this idea of a legitimation crisis. This idea uh, that people just don't trust authority anymore and what that leads us I mean it goes back to what Michael Gove said about we don't trust that we don't want to hear from experts anymore do you have any thoughts on that and what the ramifications of that might be for society as a whole well I'm actually anxious about the fact that that we end up in a period of mistrust that becomes conspiratorial and right where you don't believe anyone anymore I of course am somebody who you know historically my my political trajectory would be to question authority to look behind the headlines to not just be deferential to people because yeah, they're yeah, in yeah. positions of power and certainly you know if an expert says this is the truth I don't just go oh really and actually I always loved that 
uh, uh, question everything slogan from originally from the the Royal Society, the major science uh, institution when it was set up in the 18th century. Look, let's question everything, but what that is not the same as saying I don't believe anyone about anything, yeah, and yeah. therefore I am going to. So I think there's just a balance, and it's I suppose it's just working out where we're at in that discussion. Mm. And some people will say, well, isn't that just a talking shop? But I still am of the belief that if you don't understand the world you're in, you can't change it. You know, and that can be on everything from really trying to understand why there is a shortage of HGV drivers rather than just taking or plucking the first prejudice that comes to head. So we've got great panels on the economy and so on. Yeah. Um, through to some of the more abstract ideas around we're going to have a, a session which is called stuck in you know stuck in the present with you it's the final keynote in fact which is looking at what does it mean for a society when we are so alienated from history we want to cancel it yeah and when the only future we imagine is kind of full of doom and gloom and you know global climate chaos and pandemics and so on do we get stuck in the present do we become so narcissistic that we can't learn from the history or and don't have the imagination to see a new future. So those kind of things, we think, well, why are you talking about that? Let me tell you, that is exactly how you begin to frame the way that you can change the world. It's to dig beneath some of the more uh, simplistic, but also kind of lazy formulations. And I, I, I know that you do woke watch. I wouldn't say a word against it. But I can't <laughs> stand the woke, anti-woke row that goes on. You know, it's like sort of, oh, I, it, it becomes lazy. And I just think that although I'm a fierce free speech warrior and the slogan of the Battle of Ideas Festival, which is at Church House on the 9th and 10th of October, I ought to say, is free speech allowed. And, and who would have ever thought that was a revolutionary slogan, but it becomes a revolutionary slogan. Yeah. Um, but still, nonetheless, we want to go beyond going, oh, yeah, we believe in free speech and they don't believe in free speech and kind of just dismissing ideas in that way. Yeah. And I loved your your Steel Manning uh, um, a podcast, I'm not just saying this to you, you know, where you, you actually gave an argument back and yeah. said, yes, but what about this, what about that? It's a perfect way that we need to, we need to rehearse our own arguments by putting them under challenge all the time. It's really enjoyable, actually, just, just trying to embody the, the opposing point of view and, and, and make sh- you know, ensuring that you've, you've understood it correctly, because so much, I mean, I think you're absolutely right about the woke versus anti-woke thing. I think it is so tabloid, uh, really. I mean, I, I did a segment in my show recently where I outlined the history of the word, why it means different things to different people, um, and why it came about. You know, I think a lot of people just wanted a shorthand for these various sort of uh, tentacles of this, of this ideology, yeah. which seems to go into race, gender identity, uh, sexuality, all this sort of stuff. And uh, so you end up with a word like woke, which then just becomes, in the mouths of some people, a lazy kind of uh, way to describe something or even a kind of slur and that doesn't help the debate so I actually completely agree with you um, on that but do you ever worry though that you know these conversations are so important to break through the kind of prejudices and the kind of hysteria I see a lot in public discourse and debate but though the people who are uh, uh, tempted to accept lazy narratives or conspiratorial thinking um, or woke versus anti-woke tribalism or whatever you might, it might be those are the sort of people that would benefit most from being at the battle, but are also the least likely to attend. There's always that danger. I, I mean, you know, I do fear people just closing, um, closing down their intellectual curiosity yeah. and 
in some ways, you know, wanting things to be very black and white. Yeah. That is the challenge, isn't it? But that's why you put on a festival and you surprise people. I hope, you know, we always say at the end of a session, if people kind of leave and say, I'm more confused than I was when I walked in, you think, success. Yeah. Because yeah, people yeah. realise, oh, it's more complicated than I realised. And in a way, that gives you a richer uh, a set of ideas. And if you look at the website, each session of the 75 panels have got background readings. So we're trying to encourage people to sort of think about this in kind of the round. Yes, of course, that's a concern, which is why I'm always delighted that it, the festival does attract uh, so many um, uh, young people, mm. students or uh, sixth formers or in their 20s or 30s. And they're, you know, they might well be what people would say a little woke or, you know, they're going to be. But they're kind of also, you know, young and intellectually open and curious and thinking politically. I'm a bit homeless. I don't know where I'm going. It's not like as though you kind of they end up agreeing with what I would think. But the point is they got stirred to action. They got stirred to think and they and they went off and did something beyond kind of whinging, which is a danger, or kind of just feeling demoralised. One of the dangers of feeling that everything's out of control and that there's a major conspiracy and everything's over there yeah. is that you lose a sense of agency. You can't, therefore, act upon the will to change it. It's one of the things I hate and despise about identity politics, which tells you that what's most interesting about you is the immutable characteristics. I'm a woman, right? It's not an achievement. You haven't earned it. I mean, I never did anything, right? What kind of a woman I am? is something I have to morally struggle with all the time. I and mean, yeah. what decisions I've made, what mistakes I've made, many. Um, <laughs> what regrets I have, what my ambitions are. These are things which are difficult, but what make you, hopefully, a better human being. It's really interesting you mentioned about younger people and the importance of younger people getting involved in this kind of thing. And I think you're right. And you also have the academy as well, and you have uh, Debating Matters, the competition. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for young people and um, but I was speaking recently to a friend of mine who's a teacher and uh, she was saying that it's getting harder because the, the kids have increasingly and maybe it's just that, that particular school but there's a number who have an increasingly kind of intolerant view of, of discussion of, of broadening their ideas and, and that's not to say all but it's quite an aggressive minority amongst young people and, and, and she's finding that difficult as a teacher to negotiate do you think this is a problem? I wrote a, a very short book um, a, a few years ago, three or four years ago, and I was prompted to write that book. This is I found that I find that fancy. Yeah, yeah. By my, by the disturbing experiences I was having because I was get invited to speak at six forms in universities and so on, and I was finding that increasingly, the young people I was speaking to were not arguing back, but were kind of breaking into tears or, or saying, "I find that offensive." I mean, that's kind of where it all start, where that title came from and then quite aggressively saying you can't say that and I was thinking well you've invited me to speak <laughs> I mean what do you mean um, and then saying take that back or you know I demand or why are you here or all this kind of thing and it was a kind of shift and um, I then got into the conundrum of I was looking at what was happening in America as a kind of warning sign to what was happening here and talking about the, the fragility and the, the, the psychological, the genuine uh, psychological distress that, that, that certain challenging ideas were causing to young people. And I used a term that was being used in America at the time, Generation Snowflake. Yes. Which, of course, is a disaster because now Wikipedia says I popularised it in the UK. <laughs> and a bit like woke, it becomes yeah. a kind of like when the sun kind of set up, you know, uh, uh, a kind of you can telephone in your, you know, generate your snowflake stories. Well, that, that's oh, it. Oh, my God. I mean, you're not using I it in the book it. No, I, no, in that no. way. In fact, no. the last chapter of that book 
is addressed to young people. It you is. know, it's very but much I not... I do say, dear generation snowflake. You do, but it doesn't have that patronising tone in the... That's in very the, kind. You know. But all I'm saying is that... So, yes, I mean, it's becoming more difficult. Yeah. And, and in fact, the kind of model that young people are into... And, you know, they're expected to live by in some ways is that they stress their vulnerability, yeah. is that they actually say, I find that very hard. And, you know, that they take things very personally and therefore the kind of, the, you know, to kind of lampoon them as kind of thin skinned, easily offended is, is, is actually got a truth to it. Because the reality is, is that young people are socialised by my generation and the generation below me now into thinking that 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 they will be deeply hurt by ideas and by words and they kind of grow up with that and then they find everything damaging and it almost becomes a fait accompli that they are damaged yeah. as a consequence so you know i've always um, and this is me being paternalistic but seen myself as part of a rescue operation um, yeah. and and also there are many young people um maybe a minority, but there are millions of young people who really are bristle at the Generation Snowflake trend, mm. and, but feel sometimes frightened to speak out, isolated themselves. And so you can create an atmosphere of um, solidarity and letting them see that it is okay to speak and think out loud. And one thing that the Battle of Ideas does, by the way, but it's you know, one of the things I believe in politically, you do have to be able to think out loud. Yes. Right. You need to be able to go, what about what? You know, thought experiments. Maybe I'm not right, but could I just say this? Without yeah. people jumping down your throat and saying, that means this means you are damned. And I think it's really awful for uh, people at the moment that, that if they misspeak, that they thre they're threatened with being cancelled or demonised as, yeah, you, know, yeah. de you know, as called terrible names or, you know, losing their jobs or their reputations, all of these things. We have to create more and more spaces, like you said, town halls mm. um, across social and age groups and all groups for people to think out loud and say, look, I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but, you know, is there anything wrong with fossil fuels? Maybe they're a really good thing or... Yeah. Should we say that progress was a terrible idea and the Industrial Revolution shouldn't have happened? I mean, either of those thoughts are worth considering yes. and discussing without people going, what do you mean? You are, you know, and so on I and so forth. I think that's so right. And so I, I think we should be all, or everybody, should be trying to create public spaces where, and this is ironic, where people are safe to say what they think. So yeah. you could then say, oh, you just want your safe space. But it's... It's actually just where you know that you will be free to say something and you won't be ridiculed yeah. uh, or treated like dirt if you say it. I mean, if you say something stupid, somebody might say that was a stupid thing to say. But, you know, I've been grateful for people telling me I've said stupid things over the years yeah. because it is important to learn. Oh, yeah, it was really. Yeah, but me you too. you don't have to say it with malice. No, that's it. That's it. And I think that's absolutely... This is why I think freedom of, this, freedom of speech has to be at the bedrock of this whole thing because... The, the development of ideas and the cultivation of your mind is a collaborative process. If you can't experiment and artic in articulating ideas that you're not sure about at any given time without that fear, um, then you, you, you won't refine your thoughts. You won't get anywhere. You'll just stay in a kind of stasis. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what you're doing so well at the Battle of Ideas. And I also think that's why it's so important to get young people involved. And, 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 and I mean, as you know, I was a teacher, so I, I do have this particular emphasis on education and I worry about education and I worry about uh, a kind of um, homogeneity amongst young people in terms of the way that they think. But actually, it, I don't think 
it is paternalistic necessarily to say there is a problem with that or to say that there is a problem with, with, with resilience. If anything, that's more critical of my generation who have instilled absolutely. those circumstances. I agree, I agree. And as an ex-teacher, we agree on this, absolutely. And I think that... I, the thing is, I feel as though I owe it to young people to say what I think to yeah. them. Straight, you know, look them in the eye and say what I believe and not, you know, be condescending and say, oh, how interesting what you're, you know, maybe you're a new generation and I can learn from you. Because if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, right? But they deserve to be taken seriously by me. And it's a mark of respect when I tell people the truth, right? Yeah. You know what it's like? Of course. If, if somebody says to you, oh, you're brilliant, you're brilliant, you're brilliant, you know, I often know that they're just saying that, right? And they don't mean, you know, they're not really listening to me. Oh, I love you. You're brilliant. You're brilliant. What, what were you on again? You know, like, it's like sort of like, whereas when people say to you, I thought you were really brilliant when you said that, but I thought that second point you made was absolutely rubbish. What you, you know, and you didn't explain it well at all. Then I know they were listening to me. Yeah. Right. Then I, I first of all, I can learn. I don't like it. I bristle. I want people to tell me how brilliant I am all the time, <laughs> of course. But it's important that we hear truth from people who respect our capacity to deal with some hard truths. And I therefore want to say that when I say to young people, look, you've really got to expose yourself to some of these difficult ideas, it's because I'm taking them seriously, right? Yeah. I don't want, I know what I was like when I was young. I was arrogant, I didn't want to listen to anyone. I thought I understood the world better than anyone else. Thank goodness, older people said, you are a, you know, uh, cliched, yeah. naive, and, 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 and by the way, there was an element of what I said when I was young that was right, yeah. and they were being dinosaurishly old. Yeah. But that was kind of like 10% of what I said. 90% needed a good drubbing. And through that, I read more. I started to think again. I realised that I was just spouting forth. And that's how we all learn. And I can say at my uh, at much older age now, I continue to want to learn. I'm not yeah. closed at all. I think being honest with people is a courtesy, isn't it? Absolutely. And yet, you know, I've, I've, I've learned over the past seven or so years that actually a lot of people don't want you to be honest with no. them. They don't want to hear those opinions that, that they, they've, they've decided are beyond the pale and that they mustn't even interrogate. I suspect because if they did, they might end up coming round to that point of view and they don't want that, you know. Um, and, and this leads me on to another question I had about the festival generally, is that so many of the things we've been discussing here are about issues uh, relating to uh, what have, has become known as the culture wars, legitimation crisis, authority, these kind of things. Um, not so much about left and right, not so much about those old uh, divisions that date from the French Revolution. You know, what, do you think that those sort of terms, I mean, you yourself come from a leftist background, yeah. you remember the uh, Revolutionary Communist Party, and yet... People sometimes now accuse you of being right-wing, far-right even. Some, some idiots say that. I mean, I do, and I do think that's idiotic. So I, I, I know I shouldn't throw slurs around, but I think that just no, is. It just clearly is idiotic. And I get the same thing as well. So, so do we, do we, have we reached a point where we just have to say, look, maybe left and right is obsolete. Maybe the new alliances are to do with the, the conflict between liberty and authority. Maybe there are different battle lines being drawn up now. I started really thinking about this when I was training. I'm doing a PGCE of all things in further education Are teaching. You? No, when I was. I was going to say, did. I thought you no, did. No, no, I, I did, did all that. Yeah. No, but I, I, I did it. I'd been teaching an FE before I did the PGCE. Right, I right. a few years. I did a PGCE, but the reason I'm saying this was, and I was like thinking I was going to, and I was writing for Living Marxism at the time yeah. on education issues. And um, I was in, you know, I was like a student, but a mature student, having been teaching for years. One of the, uh, the, the members of staff said, we have to be very, 
careful about the red use of the red pen because this can destroy people's self-esteem forever. And, you know, and I'm like an English teacher. And I said, uh, um, well, you have to correct people, right? Yeah. And, and, and it's very important. I think that people, that's how they learn. And anyway, some uh, uh, fellow students stood up, burst in tears and said, it's, it's due to people like you that my life has been ruined. And I failed every exam and you think I'm a failure. Well, because you thought, marked... Well, apart anything else, if you failed every exam, there might be something. But anyway, and she said, that's the kind of Thatcherite fascism that I didn't expect to hear at the University of Greenwich, which is what it was at the time. What, for marking in a red pen? No, you, you might say that in that tone of voice. That was my kind of... And I said, well, I genuinely thought... Then I discovered that there was quite a lot of sympathy with this view. And then I discovered there's a whole educational theory that said that actually assessment needs to take into account esteem, self-esteem. There's a whole anti-exams movement just going on as we speak yeah. that would actually argue those very things. And they would say that particularly working class people, you know, they can't cope with exams, by the way, and that you have to find different ways of assessment. Anyway, so I thought this was the most ludicrous, but it was the Thatcherite argument. That was the bit. I thought, how did that happen? That something which actually the left, um, which is, you know, from a Marxist tradition, had set up the workers' educational uh, uh, um, association uh, was always very aspirational. I'd given lectures at Ruskin College at Oxford about getting trade unionists to go to Oxford University. It was yeah. always kind of like meritocratic in its approach. Actually fought for exams because it was a way of um, saying you can't be given done a favour there, right? Yeah. Everyone is yeah, treated yeah. equally. You go in and it's your mind. It's what you write that counts. And so that was, you know, a good 25, 30 years ago, whenever it was. Yes. So I say that because I started to query, well, what does the, if we're going to go down this route, what does left-right mean? Then yeah. I'd hear people say in the educational debates that I was involved in at that stage, oh, you sound like you're somebody from the Daily Mail. And I said, well, if the Daily Mail have written a good article on education, good. You know, why haven't The Guardian written it? And, and, and so what happened was, that was early days, right? Yeah, so yeah. I, I'm just saying that I started to say that I don't care whether things are left or right or what you throw at me. I, I'm saying what I think is right, right? Yes. What I think is true. I mean, do you want me to say something I don't think is true so that you think I'm suitably left-wing? Where, you know, I've been a trade union official, I've fought strikes, I've been involved in left-wing politics, I've been the publisher of LM magazine. I mean, what? I don't know what you want. Yeah. So where are we now? The culture wars... And, by the way, Brexit have meant that things changed. I voted to leave the European Union in 2016 and I did not think that I was doing anything other than making a considered decision about what to do when I was asked by the government of the day whether yeah. I wanted to leave the European Union or not. I didn't know that this was going to get me accused of um, being a populist who was appealing to knuckle-dragging you know, xenophobes, which is effectively what the left did as they abandoned what had been a left-wing terrain, which was many yeah. people on the left were Eurosceptic. I mean, that was a standard feature. That was a standard feature. Jeremy Corbyn, Tony Benn, Peter Shaw, you know, etc., yeah. etc. Et so I think that we can safely say it's not reliable as a label. However, when people say, oh, you've moved to the right, and people on the right say, oh, really, you're one of us, I think, no, I'm not, actually. There are things which I just disagree with traditional right-wing things on and I don't want to pretend there's no differences there and maybe it's my age but I don't like say I like people to understand my left tradition yeah. and people say oh she pretends she's left-wing and it's like no I am you know 
we're allowed to, people are self-defining themselves on all sorts of things. I at least am allowed to say what my yeah, politics are. But I also know it's useless. Yeah. I mean, I've had the arguments defending you, Andy. Yeah, I'll bet. Do you know what I mean? I'm saying, what are you talking about? He's a lefty. And they'll go, he's not a lefty. He supports, what, free speech? You see, yeah, free speech has become a synonym for um, uh, being right-wing and a cover for bigotry in some people's minds. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they, they say it's a right-wing talking point, the defence of free speech, and, and, and simply, I suppose, because of that, the, the fallacy of guilt by association, because there will be some people who will use their free speech to say some terrible course, reactionary things, and, and therefore, if you defend their right to say it, you're seen as defending the substance of their speech. It strikes me as such a simplistic but, but misunderstanding. But also, it's, historically, you know, the, the truth is, the people who ran society... The establishment generally associated with the right, if you, if yeah, you yeah. from from the point of view of um, you know the Conservative Party and so on, and conservative thinkers were the censors. Yes. They were the people who said, "We don't want the mob to see this." You know, censor that film in the nineteen twenties; it might all go on strike. We don't want them to read Lady Chatterley's Lovers. You know, these kind of yeah. like they looked out at the masses of people and said, "I wouldn't trust that lot, would you?" Right, and therefore it tended to be radicals. You know associated broadly with the left but radicals nonetheless and free thinkers and liberals who fought tooth and nail and I mean and look of course before that all of the great philosophers of the enlightenment were for free speech as part of a radical project to give uh, the mass of people in society the right to decide on their future to take control of that you know that's what sovereignty was that's what democracy was for goodness sake so the idea that free speech is somehow a kind of like coda for some secret cabal of right-wing people who want to kind of guffaw about people from different countries secretly over yeah. their cigars. It's just such a caricature. I mean, it's not even a caricature. It's, it bears no relationship to reality. Yeah. I take my allies wherever they come these days. And to be fair, one thing I would say, or not to be fair, but to be brutally honest, a number of people on the right think that the free speech uh, is attacked by only people on the left. I mean, there's not enough people on the traditional right wing of British politics, as far as I'm concerned, you fight for free speech. I don't care where they come I from. I agree, yeah. I just want free speeches. Great candidate for the uh, leader of the Green Party, Shahir Ali, uh, has just stood in um, the election. I don't know how we'll get on. Uh, he's speaking at the Battle of Ideas, by the way. He and I completely disagree with each other on green issues, but he's a fantastic free speech yeah. advocate. Brave, actually, uh, 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 in some of the things he's done in relation to gender-critical issues and women. Yeah. But just a great free speech guy. We're allies on that. We disagree on green things. This is what politics should be. Right? But unless you have that... Uh, shared consensus about the importance of free speech, then nothing else follows. I mean, you know, I think the Tories and Labour have been hopeless on the free speech issue, actually. Hopeless. So, hopeless. you know, I don't think it is so easily uh, definable as a right or left-wing talking point. And actually, you used to be able to find the Lib Dems. Uh, used to be... I, I used to get invited to all the party conference fringe meetings, and I was forever speaking at Lib Dem party conference because they were the ones that you kind of... They set up Liberty... You know, they were a, a kind of um, they were associated with liberty, which was yeah. in the day kind of a big free speech thing. They were associated with index on censorship, liberal, democratic, often concerned about free speech. Well, what happened there? I mean, what happened there? Genuinely, the liberal democratic party is no longer 
a champion of free speech in this country. And it's a tragedy because it's not that I ever agreed with them on much. But on that, that was well, important. So this is something that really genuinely worries me is because I see, for instance, the ACLU in America, the American Civil Liberties Union, now effectively openly attacking the co- concept of free speech. Absolutely scary. And the same here. I mean, the same with Index on Censorship. I Have saw... you seen the cartoon? Yes. So, so the other day, Index on Censorship... They attacked in an article Maya Fostata and, and smeared her and, uh, and have basically taken this very hardline position on hate speech and the importance of clamping down on what they call hate speech, even though that's such a nebulous thing that it can never be defined. And then they have this cartoon, which was effectively, I mean, I, I glanced at it, but it, was it effectively mocking those who believe that we should platform all ideas? Yes. So the thing that's interesting about the cartoon, and I, and I don't know, you know, there's some dispute about whether it was referring to the Mayor Forstata uh, yeah. uh, uh, letter, an uh, article about her and then the letter that she wrote in response. The cartoon basically has a perfectly reasonable person who's talking about feeding children and how we must feed children. Yeah. And the broadcaster says, oh, we've got to get someone on the other side. Who can we get? Or we'll get the devil. Okay. Right. And so the devil doesn't believe in feeding children you know you yes. can imagine it's like this idea that there are some issues that are beyond the pale and that, that the broadcasters are ridiculous to give platform to all people right yes now the thing is whatever way you look at that it basically typifies opponents of a political argument as the devil you know the evil yeah devil um, serpent character right? because, yeah because the problem is when, when when the NUS first inaugurated these no platforming ideas it was very specific that it was about no platforming fascists yeah. and racists but now now that we're in a context where someone who votes Tory or someone who is a gender critical feminist can just be called a fascist that doesn't really mean anything I mean that's the, this is the equivalent I think of just calling someone the devil calling someone a sinner I don't want to get the cartoon cancelled by the way um, <laughs> for anyone watching well, no you're criticising but the, car- but the ca- yeah but the cartoon I think um, you know, there, are, there is one aspect of, of, of this that y- you might say I, I recognise, which mm. is I'm often invited on by broadcasting organisations across the board, everyone, where they sort of say, will you come in on and argue against this? And there was one um, I had the other morning, which, which was get me on a big show, actually. We've had a big audience, could have really advertise the battle, but they were trying to get me to say that the HGV drivers' life, v- visas shouldn't happen because I was a Brexiteer and why would I want all these foreigners in? I mean, that was, that's a caricature what they wanted. Right. Anyway, I said, well, I don't think it's as simple as that anyway. And I, I, first of all, I'm not, I'm not anti-foreigner. I'm not anti the visas that it happens. Yes. Temporary visas, but you're missing the point anyway of what Brexit was about and what the HGV driver crisis is about. And... I said, do you want a complicated skills kind of thing or do you want, I suspect that really what you want is a debate. And she said, oh, no, no, I want you on. That sounds so interesting, very nuanced. That's just what we want. That's what we want. Anyway, I said, I think you better go and check with someone. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It seems you were right. So I have turned down lots of media things where I've been set up as a kind of black and white. Yeah, yeah. The cartoon could be doing that, but actually it was recognisable in a different way, which is it was basically saying that it's respectable ideas and there's devilish, evil, awful ideas. Yeah. And I, I thought in Index on Censorship, they might want to gulp when they looked at that and think what the significance of that is. Yeah, yeah. And I just finally say, sometimes I get invited on panels, um, panel discussions where I, I, I am really treated as the kind of like, we've got three sensible people and a mad person just to show balance, <laughs> right? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Somebody once described it as it's a bit like you've got dandruff, they're kind of like slightly, yeah. you know... Um, yeah, she's here. And then when you actually engage in the discussion, especially if there's an audience, 
the audience then kind of realised, oh, you're not the mad caricature we thought you were. Yeah. And then the organisers of the event and the chair gets in a bad mood because people start agreeing with you. It's kind of an interesting yeah. turn. But you're set up as the kind of, we felt we ought to get them in. But it doesn't that say well, so much? I know. About the, 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 I've had a similar experience with a TV appearance where someone phones up and says, can you say, I, you know, I know you think this, so just come on and say that. And it's and like, I, I remember one specifically where they basically wanted me to go on and say, oh, aren't all young people snowflakes who get just, just, you know, should shut up. It's like, I don't think that. Yeah. So I'm not going to go on TV and say it because I don't think it. And you don't really want to debate at all. Somebody said to me, but you know it's X programme. I said, do you really think I'm so desperate? <laughs> I want, you know, it's like sort of like, you know, they were basically saying to me, how could you possibly turn down this opportunity, Claire? And it's like, actually, uh, you're, we're now doing this podcast for, a, for a, a, um, a media channel. You've got a show. But I know that you have not kind of aspired to be a TV presenter. No. It's a platform. Yeah. And for me, I run the Academy of Ideas. I, that's what I'm passionate about. Before that, I was a teacher. But I used to write articles. I used to go on TV and radio programmes because it's a way of entering the public square and having a platform. But it's not because I was like desperate to be a TV presenter and get on the tally and get a clip and put it on social media. But right? that is the assumption of so many that people. That's why you, you get this accusation of being a grifter all the time. I get it. I'm sure you've uh, had it. All the time. Which is just because... because your opinions are, are, are different from this person's, they, they can't conceive of why anyone would disagree unless it was from financial reasons. They think that reasons. I'm being paid, yeah. yeah. And the other thing is, I do all these uh, media things all the time, I always forget to put the invoices in because I'm so used to it. <laughs> if I'm a grifter, I'm not doing very well at all. <laughs> the assumption is, you know, who do you work for? That's part of the conspiratorial mindset that's actually very prevalent on the left. You know, people, that's the other thing, is people sort of say, rise of conspiracy theorists, of anti-vaxxers, all on the far right. Well, let me tell you, the conspiratorial mindset that happens across left and right. Yeah, There's a kind of yeah. left-wing version, which is assuming that everybody who has a particular view must be in the pay of the big corporates, you know, your back, and so on and so forth. And it, it's because they don't believe that people hold ideas in good faith. Yeah. Especially if they're ideas that are unpopular. And I suppose I, 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 one thing I should say to you now, to clarify, is people will often say, you know, that... Oh, you're just being contrarian. You're a yeah. contrarian. I'm often introduced in that way. I actually don't like contrarians. Um, I don't like the kind of people who, if somebody says black, you say white. Yes. I really, really, really want to be popular. I really want <laughs> my views to be the views that are shared by many people. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. like being like... It's like whenever a policy comes out, and I think, oh, God, I disagree with that policy. Oh, I don't want to disagree with it, right? Because I know I'll be maybe in a minority. In other words, I don't just think the, the job of of somebody in intellectual life or political life is to kind of naysay everything, although questioning is yeah. good. It's just that there's so many things I disagree with. Yeah. And, and what would you rather, you know, am I going to go, oh, I'm, I'm not going to speak? Because that seems to me to be an act of cowardice. Because this was uh, one of the things that motivated you to join the Brexit party, wasn't it? Insofar as, because I've heard you talk about, I'm not putting words in your mouth, no, I've no. heard you talk about this and I know this, uh, and we've spoken about this, is that, you know, uh, at some point, you have to take a stand for what you believe in, even though you know it could cause all sorts of yeah. problems. I mean, you must have felt that at the time. I struggled, let us put it that way. Yeah. I've never been interested in formal politics. I didn't want to stand because I knew the rep that my reputation as a, as a kind of BBC Radio 4... Part, I, I was a kind of like just about tolerated in the yeah. media elites and... Um, and I had a reputation for being, uh, yeah, knowing everyone. And I knew if I stood for the Brexit Party, that reputation would, 
would probably take a hammering. I, I remember, uh, so I said no, uh, and, then, and then I changed my mind because I really did believe that if Brexit was sold out, that it would lead to mass disillusion with democracy. And yeah, I felt yeah. an obligation because I was well known from the media for, I, and people just kept asking me. And also I thought, God, if I'm a lefty Brexiteer, I've got to do this. Otherwise well, there weren't any be, lefty yeah. Brexiteers. But I also felt like I'm known as somebody on the left who voted Brexit. There are other people on the left who voted Brexit, but they're kind of not being very loud about it. Yeah. And I did sort of suggest that there was a platform of people who on the left might stand in the European elections, which was a way of reasserting that democratic decision. And basically, there was going to be 17 committee meetings before anyone did anything. So right. the Brexit vote was up and ready, and I, and I decided to do it. And I was very nervous. And, um, but I remember going into my office at the Academy of Ideas, and I loved my colleagues, right? And I, I walked in, and I said, I've decided to stand. And I was like silence really of course because they knew what would happen yeah by the way they'd been they were so supportive and brilliant and without them the battle of ideas wouldn't exist because i'm always too busy and running around and doing all sorts of things yeah but they knew what it would mean and what it meant was that we lost a huge amount of sponsorship for the festival we you know people started saying oh well if she's standing with the brexit party you know? yeah yeah it kind of was a formal recognition of what i, I mean i didn't have the same views i had the two weeks before well, people suddenly started saying, oh, well, you know, maybe, uh, anyway, it was like that. So there was a cost, there was a cost. But, you know, I, I, I didn't, I did the right thing. Yeah. I mean, that's not one of the things I regret. I, I regret other things, but that, that's definitely not one of them. Well, no, I mean, if it weren't for the formation of the Brexit party. Uh, we... Well, Brexit wouldn't have happened. But I right. also think if we think things are toxic now. My goodness, I think they would have really been toxic. If Brexit yeah. had been overturned and an anti-democratic coup, I think that what, we, we would have been storing up some very, very deep-seated problems. And I, they haven't entirely gone, because actually there are people, as we speak, who are on manoeuvres to try and overthrow Brexit, and they are using things like the HGV drivers yeah. Uh, yeah. Dispute to dispute to do that. And uh, I see that Gina Miller is starting a new party, for example, and there's all sorts of things going on. I got a, an email from Anna Subri, because I'm on some mailing list, because that's the funny thing about algorithms, they get things wrong. And it <laughs> said, uh, now is our chance to you know, rejoin the EU prove that Brexit was a disaster. I only got that the other day, and, you know, that's what, what's going on. It was, it was a tricky decision. These things have consequences. But, but, I, but I think that you, you all the time have to just try and speak in good faith. And what I really hate is bad faith, which is why I don't like that kind of somebody says black, you say white. Yeah, yeah, white. I agree. And it's also why I, I, I actually myself object to to, as it were, shills or whatever it is they say, you know, where, yeah. you know, I, of course I don't like I'm, paid what, content, you know, I mean, no, I'm I, sure I, they, yeah, they yeah. exist. They do exist. And I'm saying, and I despise them. But the assumption that the someone assumption. is. Yeah. No, I agree. But I'm saying those people who, that's why I object to them saying it about me. Cause yeah. I'm thinking, God, well, where's the money? But, um, <laughs> yeah, but, but, but also that's an assumption. And also, but I just mean anyone who speaks in bad faith in any circumstance, you can only speak in good faith and you have to, I think conscience is an underrated concept. And mm. I think that freedom of conscience is always where you try and think, am I, you know, am I acting in conscience, you know, or am I just doing this for the sake of keeping the peace? And of course, we all do that sort of yeah, thing sometimes. Yeah. But, but nonetheless, that's what I try and do. So while we're talking about this idea of uh, loyalties, political loyalties, this kind of thing, you've obviously now gone in, into the House of Lords as Baroness Fox of Buckley. I bet you didn't see this coming. Um, and of course, 
in, in the past, you've been very openly sceptical about the institution of the House of Lords. Well, I mean, as a Democrat, as someone who believes in democracy, you would, uh, I know that you would have some misgivings, say, about an unelected House. How do you respond uh, to the criticism that by taking a seat in the House, you are effectively a hypocrite? Yeah. Well, I think it's a perfectly legitimate criticism, actually. You know, I, I think that the House of Lords should be abolished. I think it's an and you're saying that as a member. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I do. I, I think that an unelected second chamber is untenable in a democracy. I, I do think that. You know, shock horror, right? So what am I doing there? Um, a number of people think that I'm there for the money because you get paid a daily allowance. Yes. Um, so that's the kind of argument, again, that you're yeah. a shill. You're only doing it for it's the a, money. It's a common know, it's theme, isn't it? Yeah. It's a theme. When I was offered it, I was so shocked that I didn't know what to say. And they said, before you say no, hear us out, which was, uh, and they said, we know you want to abolish the House of Lords. We, oh, they uh, conceded that. It was an acknowledgement. Of, wow. Uh, but, you know, and then it, basically the conversation was about uh, the role that the Brexit Party played and also the contribution of the Academy of Ideas, actually, and oh, really? the Battle of Ideas to, the, to free speech. So it was an, a recognition of free speech uh, as an important thing, and it would be good to have that. Now, um, I, you know, this is all, you know, anonymized, anonymous to me, talking to somebody I didn't know, and, and, and so on. Anyway, of course, I said, well, I've got... So you hadn't seen this coming at all? There were no, no not overtures? E- not to... even... Ne- no, <laughs> is the answer. Absolutely not. I, I, you know, almost like to the point where I thought, is it a radio show for me up, you know, some yeah. sort of set up? One of the people who phoned me said, you know, in, the, in this discussion, these discussions that went on, was, you know, it's not just about you. And there was a truth there, which is it's an acknowledgement of the Brexit Party. Yes. And it is true that I was an MEP for the Brexit Party and associated with it. And they said it's also about the work that you've done with the Battle of Ideas Festival and what's now a charity, Debating Matters, um, the work you've done with schools debating and so on. You know, Mm. it's an acknowledgement of that. But it goes back to what we said before. Politics is a weird and wonderful thing. I have done all sorts of gigs over the years um, to have a platform, not to earn money, but to have a platform. Because yeah. there are certain things that I'm passionate and believe in, and I want to have a public platform. And when I first got involved in politics, and if I was invited to speak and I got 15 people in the top of a pub, I was delighted with myself. Right? Mm-hmm. I had an audience. And all the time, you know, you may be speaking to 500 people. When I was a student, elected student union officer, you know, you might have 1,000 people at some times, Right. This idea that anyone wants to hear anything I've got to say is still such a novelty to me that I consider it a privilege, yeah. not one to be taken lightly, and, I, and an opportunity that it would seem to me to be mad to miss. So I saw and see the House of Lords as another platform yeah. that, I would, that has opened up um, a world that I, didn't, that I didn't have any interest in being in, but it allows certain things, um, to me to say certain things and so on that I wouldn't have a chance to say. I have become more aware of the role of Parliament in the House of Lords in terms of legislation. Yes. And I have never taken any notice of the detail of legislation. Now I understand it more, having been exposed to it in the House of Lords, and it scares me how laws are made, the way they're made, how little debate there is, and I hope that I can make that public for people. You know, show yeah. and shine a light, and I do a kind of weekly inside the House of Lords, sitting on a bench outside. Yeah, I, th- uh, I think I that's really good. <laughs> I, I've really enjoyed that because I think that is an insight that we would never have got. Yeah. Um, and, and also, I really enjoy watching your speeches in the House of Lords because I think, you know, it was always a bit of a no-brainer for me, this, because 
these pro-free speech, pro-democracy arguments are being articulated in an important... That it, the reality is we have this second chamber, and, and, and here's an opportunity to hear those arguments being presented in a coherent way in the second chamber. Um, and so even though you believe that it should be abolished, at least within the system that we currently have, those ideas are being uh, export, explored and expressed. Yeah, I mean, the point is, it, it does exist. And yeah. I exist. And somebody said, do you want to go in there? Right? Mm. Right? So... <laughs> so but, but the hypocrisy point is a fair one because I, I mean, it's, not, it's not as though I went, oh, all right then. I mean, I immediately thought, how can I be, become a baroness, right? It's a ludicrous proposal and it's an anti-democratic house. And I, I do get anxious because one of the things that's happened recently is that the House of Lords probably were more radical in challenging um, the attempt, for example, to pass a piece of legislation on maternity leave without mentioning the word woman. And it was in the House of Lords that there was a kind of kerfuffle mm. I, which I was part of and we at least got the word mother entered in you know shock horror yes um, and it became a kind of big sort of thing and people a big you know victory on the gender critical thing and common sense obviously in a maternity bill to mention women occasionally yes and people were kind of emailing me writing to me and saying oh you know you are one of the people who's convinced me that thank god we've got the house of laws and I was thinking that's not the outcome I want you to come up with right <laughs> on the other hand I was also pleased to have contributed to the legislation not being completely mad Yes. And challenging the fact that this march through the institutions had led to a piece of legislation being written in such a way that women were excluded from a debate on maternity, which is one of the great uh, insults of our time and one of the great controversies of our time. I can understand the hypocrisy point and, I, and I've reconciled myself to it yeah. in as much as I know that I'm trying to have my cake and eat it. And I just hope and do more good than, than harm. And I think that in a period in which politics is completely shaken up left and right the way that you said I think party politics the way it is at the moment is not helpful in any way to anyone right and, it, and people feel disenfranchised and homeless and where the culture wars which people think people fight the culture wars or take up the cudgel that misses the point actually culture is in crisis mm. our cultural institutions are in crisis and um, they can't sustain their own narrative about themselves they, it's not like I've come along and said why don't you collapse? And they are collapsing, yeah. right? There is a crisis of ideas at the heart of the culture, of uh, 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 Western culture in particular, but of social life. And that means that there's fractious arguments about it. And yes, I enter into them. And I think that the House of Lords sometimes has missed that moment. Yeah. And so if somebody going in and explaining some of this and just kind of like drawing attention to what is really important, because these people decide the laws of the land, bear in mind, right? Um, their votes count for something. They do actually end up having more power than I thought they did. So let's see if I can use it to, uh, to do some good. But I, I'm perfectly happy for people to hold me to account on this and just say, you're a hypocrite, I'm not listening. I understand that. I get it. Well, Claire, thanks so much for joining me today. Just remind everyone uh, when the Battle of Ideas is, how they can get involved, that kind of thing. Of course. So it's the 9th and 10th of October, which is... Uh, a weekend, you know, a week's time at the weekend. It's the whole of Saturday and Sunday. It's at Church House in Westminster. Um, we've got some great speakers, including Andrew Doyle is doing right. <laughs> Free Speech Nation live, or, you know, as live with the audience. And yeah. That'll be exciting. It'll be great. As I say, hundreds of speakers, but hundreds of you all coming, and I hope hundreds more of you will come. And it's um, battleofideas.org.uk. Check us out. We've also got a Battle of Ideas in Buxton, 
Um, so for those people who say I'm definitely not going to London, yeah. we're in Buxton on the 30th of um, October as well. I hope I said. So 9th and 10th of October, 30th of October, but actually just get down to church as. I mean, if you've got anything interesting to say, or if you want to sit quietly and take notes, or if you just think, am I the only person thinking the world's gone mad? No, you're not. Come down, bit of solidarity. Well, I, for one, cannot wait. I genuinely love the Battle of Ideas every year. I really look forward to it. Claire Fox, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me on. This has been the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to like and subscribe. And check out my show, Free Speech Nation, every Sunday night at 7pm on GB News. See you next time where we'll have another fabulous guest. Farewell.